0: Crossway Church, Sermon Audio. Poetry has always flowed from deep emotion and thought. There may be some poetry lovers among us. I certainly do enjoy a poem or two and certainly enjoy writing them and song lyrics. But arguably, the topic of love has captured the most, uh, in, uh, most poems, lyrics, and songs really throughout all of history. It's a topic that does not go dry. You can't plumb the bottom of it. And Shakespeare's soliloquies or his sonnets on love remain some of the more beloved and intricate poems of the English language. So I treat you now to an American's reading of a Shakespearean English. Here we go. Love is a smoke raised with the fume of sighs. Being purged, a fire sparkling in lovers' eyes being vexed to see nourished with lovers' tears. What is else? A madness most discreet, a choking gall, and a preserving sweet. I don't understand a thing I just said. But it sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Even more so if I had a British accent. Now take it easy, I'm not going to be going to the Song of Solomon this morning. We are going to be preaching from God's Word in Psalm 119, although that certainly would be a worthy sermon, would it not, to go to the Song of Solomon. But we're going to be looking rather at a love poem and devotion of a different facet, of a different stream. Because this psalm, Psalm 119, is a poem, a song written for the Psalter on the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, a love song to the Bible. It's a love song. It's a soliloquy to Scripture. It is a song 176 lines long. It's a massive text, really. I'm not going to read the whole thing today. That would take probably the whole sermon, but we'll be looking at parts of it, more of a survey of the text. It's 176 lines long, arranged masterfully in 22 different stanzas. And each of the stanza is eight lines long and corresponds to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic poem, which if you remember, if you would go back to elementary school days, you had to write like, mom, marvelous, outstanding mother, or, or you know, poems that you would write to your mom or your dad on Father or Mother's Day where every letter of the line had to correspond with the letter that was at front. In this case, it's the 22 Hebrew alphabet letters. And if, for instance, the first, if you look with me in verses 1 through 8, you'll notice there is, if, if your Bible has the marking of Aleph, that is the first letter of the hebrew alphabet aleph so every line in the first stanza begins with a word that has aleph so it was masterfully written you think about this it's an intricate poem where the the writer whether david or otherwise took great care to write a love poem with great intricacy in the acrostic form in the original Hebrew. So we're talking, really, about a poem of poems, both in its size as well as in its complicated nature. It's a song that treats its grand subject really like a kaleidoscope. It weaves the themes of its object, it, and it gauges the worshiper, and like, almost like an all-out assault on both the mind and the heart. Looking through a kaleidoscope, the colors, the beauty, the patterns. That's what this psalm intends to do. And the great object of the psalmist's desire is nothing less than the word of God. And if you read even just the first couple lines, you'll recognize the repetitive use of words like law, statutes, testimonies, word, truth. These are words that encapsulate or synonyms that encapsulate God's word the scriptures, the Bible, as we Christians have it today. So this is a love song, a love poem to the word of God. Preacher Charles Spurgeon said of this psalm, this is the holy soul's soliloquy before an open Bible. It's a love song before an open Bible, says Spurgeon. And for many a modern mind, this psalm might strike an odd chord. It might be the kind of thing that, if you think about it, that someone could write such a long and a lavish song about the written words of Scripture. To a modern mind, it might strike an odd chord. Consider, I mean, just how striking it is. For This, this is the longest poem in the Scriptures. One of the more complicated poems in the book of Psalms. And that makes it stand out in a big way, but yet that... Of all themes and subjects, that psalm is focused on the word of God. You would would maybe think that that psalm would be reserved for something about the person of God. Or maybe his works, his great salvation and how his arm has wrought it for him. And it would retell the story of Israel and retell how he saves and how he is so good. The matter of this psalm is God's words, the written scripture of God. And there are many glorious reasons for the writing of this psalm, and certainly for the Christian mind when we consider it's not an odd reason at all. It's not an odd thing for a man or a woman to pen these words, Psalm 119, 176 lines long, 22 stanzas, 8 lines each, in acrostic form. It's not an oddity at all, for we know and have tasted, haven't we, Of the worth of God's word. Haven't you? You have held the scriptures. You have read the scriptures. You have memorized portions of this word. All because you are convinced. That this is life. This is food. Brothers and sisters. If you are a Christian. You stand with me. You agree with me. This is your life. This is it. This is what you have for living for feeding, for growing. This is it. So it's not a surprise for the Christian mind, although for the modern mind it might be a quizzical or or an odd thing to think that somebody could write this. But this psalm is written by somebody who is fully convinced that the deepest joys in this life are tied to God's self-revelation in Scripture. The deepest joy you can have, the deepest joy I can have, the psalmist is convinced. It's tied, it's wrapped up in the Bible. Completely, utterly wrapped up. You can't have one without the other. You can't have deep joy, abiding joy. You can't have it without the scriptures. And the psalmist is convinced. And he goes off, waxes eloquent. So the psalmist is up to something that we would do well to key into, to focus in on to understand so a lot of things we could glean from this text and we certainly need to be convinced of the hope and the glory of scripture you need convinced this morning and so do I daily we need convinced of the worth and the hope and the glory of scripture and that's precisely what this psalm is set out to do so to start let's read just the first two stanzas of the text just to set the tone we're going to read from Psalm 119 look with me Verses 1 through 16. Here we go. First two stanzas. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways would be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Amen. That is God's word through the psalmist. Last week in his sermon from Psalm chapter 1, Steve proposed a similar proposition that I believe Psalm 119 is drawing us to. And it really is drawing us to be convinced. It's drawing us to be convinced of this. If you would truly be happy, you must love and live out God's word. This will be the theme of our our reading this morning. If you would be truly happy, you must love and live out God's word. And in order to love God's word, in order to cherish, to to delight in it, we have to be convinced of several things, several realities. Number one, God's words are treasure. We must be convinced that God's words are treasure if we're going to delight in them. Secondly, God's words are tested. They are faithful. They are trustworthy. They can bear up under the weight. They can handle it. God's words are tested. And finally, God's words must be tried. We have to walk them out. They cannot sit on a shelf. They must be put into action. They must be tried. So these three realities about Scripture we'll see from Psalm 119 will convince us by the grace of God and so that we might love And live out God's word, okay? So that's where we're heading this morning. Let's look at God's words as treasure. Taking up Psalm 119, we will quickly realize that this psalmist is completely bonkers about Scripture. He is mad. He is in love. He is delighted with the truth of God. The written, written truth of God. Truth of God on parchment, on paper, in ink. He is taken up with it, with the study of it, with devotion. To it. This is a man who, who goes without saying. Really, as you read these these words and you read of his his devotion, you realize this man really, really, really loves God's word. Truly, no doubt, goes without saying. He truly loves God's word. This is not a, a sidebar pursuit or or somewhat uh, uh, some passive. Uh, affection that, um, of a man who's mildly convinced that scripture is somehow good for him and, and for his walk with the Lord, that somehow it's a good idea. He was told at one point in his young life as a good Hebrew that if I read this, it'll make me feel better or it'll do things for me. So um, maybe I should give it a try. That, that's not the description of what we're seeing here in this man's attitude towards the Bible. His attitude, he is absolutely convinced He gushes over the Bible. This is really, if you think about it, Psalm 119 ends up being the Bible gushing over itself. It's God's Word testifying that God's Word is beautiful. It's treasure. It really is the veritable X marks the spot. That's what the psalm is doing for us. It has drawn the lines and it, it beckons us. Dig. Get digging. Start to dig. Get it in your hands. Pour it over your heart. Pour it on your mind. Be refreshed. Relish in it. Be ravished by God's word. Relish in it. This is treasure. This is what it is. Psalm 119 is gushing over God's word. So the intended effect really is that, is that we start digging. It's like handling the sweetest, most life-sustaining food we could find or it could be imaginable for the spiritually hungry, for those who are impoverished of spirit, of which we all are. This is food. This is the sweetest food imaginable. There's, There's nothing greater thing, there's no greater thing than we can do. As those who are spiritually poor, There's nothing greater that we can do than to give ourselves to meditation and reading and hearing of the proclamation of God's word. This is the best. This is the greatest thing that we can do. Brothers and sisters, like it or not, know it or not, we are spiritually hungry, impoverished people. And God offers us the pure goodness of scripture. It makes me think of a true story that I I shared several years ago about a man, George Erdos, a Holocaust survivor, who as a child in 1944 was captive in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp located out of Hamburg, Germany. In 1944, he writes of an experience of one day while in the camp. I'm going to read this, this, uh, this testimony. One rainy, cold winter day, while I tramped around the muddy grounds, I happened to come within hearing distance of the perimeter fence, and I heard a sound like someone hissing. I looked around but saw no one, no guards, no dogs, not even any of the camp kids nearby. One more hiss and a wave of a hand directed my eyes to a movement behind a bush on the outside of the fence. The hand motioned me to come closer. I looked left and right. I didn't see any guards or guard dogs. As I walked closer, I saw a bundled-up woman about my mother's age in the bushes. Quickly, she passed a white package through the barbed wires and immediately disappeared. I picked up the package, and without hesitation, I hid it inside my coat and quickly walked away from the dangerous fence zone. The woman's timing was perfect. Within seconds, I saw one of the guards walking the perimeter of the fence, but luckily not noticing anything unusual. I walked back to my barrack and hid the unopened package under my straw pillow on my bunk bed. I thought it would be best to wait until my mother got back from work. She would know what to do with it. When my mother returned later, I whispered to her the story of the package. She took my little sister and me outside into the dark And in the relative privacy of the night, she opened the mysterious package. All three of us probed the contents in the dark. I licked my finger. It was sweet, a taste sensation I had not experienced for six or eight months. I grabbed a piece from the package and put it in my mouth. It was cold, but was unmistakably a buttery walnut noodle and a whole package of it. My mother divided the package into three portions, and chances are hers were by far the smallest. And we devoured the walnut noodles in seconds. No other food ever tasted as good in my life. And half a century later, I wonder if any tasted better since. Psalm 119 shows us the way to hold our Bibles. With a mixture of awe, joy, and hunger. Psalm 119 exemplifies for us the way we must hold our Bibles in our hearts. We need convincing. Because this psalm really does reveal, I mean, how many of us truly hold the Bible in the way that Psalm 119 prescribes for us? The level of devotion and commitment that we just read of. None of us. We need God's help and grace, and we need direction. We need the Lord to come to help us. And this psalm really becomes a cue card for our devotion. Its, it's lines it's and its exclamations of praise are meant to become our very own. It really does end up becoming our own lyrics. This must be. As all the psalms, they're meant to become your lyrics. Do you know that? Psalm 119 was written by God the Spirit so that you would pray that those exclamations of praise and desire for God's Word would become your very own. That we would join in with the psalmist and his praise and devotion to Scripture. I mean, consider the depth, some of the the depth of his devotion. Verse 127, he says, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Verse 127, verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. And finally, verses 47 and 48, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Wow. Such devotion. Now these are sentiments that we generally, again, think are for the worship of God himself. But this level of devotion is revealing. It is revealing. The believer, the one who truly loves God, must love His Word. Must demonstrate the delight in His Word. God and His Word are inseparable. We commune with God. We abide in Christ. We walk by the Spirit through our commitment to and our consumption of Scripture. There it is. Communion with God. Fellowship with the living God scripture they're forever connected they will not be separated the actual value and beauty of god's word and his own presence are equal the value of god's presence and the value of his word are equal and for the true christian they are of equal importance as well we do not dare approach god without reference to his word we do not dare think about god apart from his word We don't do those things. Nor do we imagine that we can love God apart from loving his commandments. What kind of foolhardy errand is that? That we believe I can love God and not pay attention to his word and not obey his commandments. That's a fool's errand and it leads to destruction. For the one who truly loves God loves and obeys his commandments. We treat God's words as we treat God himself. So that does ask the question how are we treating God? How are we treating his words? Because as we treat his word, we treat him. We val- do we value his presence apart from his scriptures? That cannot be done. So as we treat his word, we treat God himself. As believers, we don't hold out for something better. And it's almost like we're in the waiting room and this is the waiting room literature. is like some reader's digest. We're waiting. We're holding on for something better, some greater manifestation of God. We're waiting for it. So we're going to read this and wait as though this is not what God has declared it to be in Scripture. This is treasure. This is treasure. This is treasure for here, for now. This is God's highest and best self-revelations for us here on earth. Right here. It's right here. The best you will see and know of God is contained in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. This is it. God's highest and best. Therefore, we must treat it with such care, with such devotion, and follow the example shown for us here in Psalm 119. So the gush over the Bible is what the Bible does in Psalm 119. And it really is God's holy prescription for lasting joy in his presence. Lasting joy in his presence means that we are giving ourselves to scripture. For how else do we have our minds transformed? How else do we have our thinking changed? How else do we have our hearts fixed on what is true and right? It's only going to come through scripture and by the spirit's power. So, question is, do you need convincing of the treasures of God's word? Do you need convincing? And you might answer that quickly. No, I don't. I, I see it. But I think it's better said that you look at your ways and allow your ways and what you do show the right answer. What is our habit of listening to sermons? Are you attentive? Do you take it in? Are you wanting to Leaning forward, desiring to grow in the truths of God's Word. And private study. Are you giving yourself, brothers and sisters, Christian, are you giving yourselves to personal study of God's Word? Do you love the Bible? Does it show in what you do? For it is better said that you look at what you do. It's better said that you look at your way, your path, and and your habits because they reveal whether you are convinced whether you are convinced that Scripture indeed is treasure, that it's the veritable X marks the spot. So where are you digging? That's my question to you this morning. Where are you digging? Where is your shovel? What are you putting value? Where is your value? Where is your worth? What is your passion? May the Lord help us, each of us, to make this number one. The study, the devotion, the affection, and then the walking out of God's word. Amen. May God help us. May God help us. So what do our habits reveal? May the Lord help us. And fathers, I want to draw special attention to you this year. 2017. May this be the year, fathers, that you lead as you read. Do your does your wife and your children know, men, that you are a man of the Bible? Do you read to your children scripture? I don't don't ask these things to condemn you. I'm asking these things so you can look at your way and so that you can change. So you can repent. Because you have to lead your family to the Bible. You have to. You're the one. God has given you that role. And may you use your influence to lead your children to love so if you're not leading your, your family to Scripture, repent. May this be a year where you do. It's simple. It could be so simple. I want to like demystify the whole thing. I mean, just sit down over dinner. Read a proverb. It's like 15 words. Read it and then talk about it and then pray a Thanksgiving prayer and maybe sing a hymn. Do a little interpretive dance. That's what Steve Heitland does for his family. Every time, it works. <laughs> Listen, you don't, it does not have to be a, a choreographed biblical lesson. Brothers, seriously, one proverb, one prayer. You've brought your family to God's word, and you've warmed them at the fire of truth. Oh, brothers, please, let this be a new year of commitment to bring your family to the treasure of the Bible. Amen. And wives, pray for your husbands, that they might lead your families in a way that honors the Lord. And children, teens, pray for dad, that he can carry out the role that God has given him. Your dad, I, me, all dads in this room, we desperately need the grace of God. We desperately need God's grace. So not just our fathers, not just families, but everyone in the church needs to gather around the bonfire of God's truth. We need the treasure. So let's move on. We've looked at God's word is treasure. Now we're gonna look at God's word. God's words are tested. God's words are tested. So let's go shopping online for a new kitchen appliance. Okay, there's three options. Three options, all the same price. So it's not like a, a contest of who's charging more. It really is having to do with the reviews. So you look at option number one. The, this option has zero reviews, but it promises, listen, it promises to change your life forever. It really. It, it says it in, the, in the, the type. It says everything in your life will be transformed if you own this appliance. So that's, that's a strong case, okay? But it has zero reviews. Like, no one's ever reviewed it, so, okay, there's that. Option two, this product has 4,378 reviews, averaging four stars out of five. That's not bad. It's not perfect. It's not perfect, but it's not bad, okay? It's pretty good. It's like a B, B plus maybe, I don't know. So that's option number two. Option number three, this product has six reviews, but it averages a perfect five out of five. So all six people gave it a five stars out of five, and they're just raving about it. They think this appliance has... I mean, save their domestic souls. They are singing glory hallelujah to the whatever brand it is. So option three, option two, option one. Where do we go? Where do we choose? I think it, common sense, common sense here, right? It guides this answer. It makes the choice easy. You're going to take the product that has been tested. You're going to choose the product. All of us, I think, without fail, we are going to look at these three products. And we're going to say, option one is a joke. We're going to chuckle and move on because no one has reviewed it. Like, no one has looked at it. Why would you buy that? That's a risk. That's too risky. Option three, it may have a perfect score, five stars, but only six people did it. And maybe they're conspiring with each other, and they're all members of the company, you know? Who knows? And like, we're going to look at that, and we're going to say, that's, it's a too thin, it's too thin. It's still too risky. Five stars, six people. I'm sorry. Now, option two. I think, again, common sense guides the way here. If you have 4,378 people from across the world are all weighing in and saying, this product really works, it's been tested, you know? It's got the weight of testimony. People's experience is that it works. So we choose, we click on option number two. Good job. We all got whatever that was. Now, if we fail to be convinced that God's words are tested, and can withstand the weight of our lives and our problems and our struggles and our sufferings and our needs and our wants, if we don't believe and we're not convinced that God's words are tested and can carry it, we will inevitably put God's word aside and we will inevitably take up something else as our rule for life and living, as the the impetus for why we do what we do and why we, we say what we say. We're going to pick up something else. If we're not convinced of the testedness of Scripture. That's inevitable. So are we convinced? Are we convinced? And it really does explain so often why the Bible is, we're so slow to pick up the Bible. It may reveal that you're not convinced. You're not convinced either of its treasury qualities or that it's tested. When we're not convinced, we're not going to be quick To reach for it. So Psalm 119 celebrates not only the beauty and the worth of God's word as treasure. It also looks and carefully records that God's words are tested. That they will indeed carry the freight. They will carry the freight for your joy and for your faith. They got it. They can handle it. They can handle the truth. Because they are truth. And they will transform us time and again. And upon careful inspection, really, to to form this out, to show us that this is the case, you'll notice that this psalm is written not on a high note of a, a person's devotion and experience in life. You'll notice that if you look carefully through this psalm, that it really is a person writing this poem, this intricate and beautiful poem of love to God's word, while under the gun. This is a person who's under the gun, who's under suffering and affliction, who is sorrowful to the point of despairing to death. Someone who is clinging to the dust of the earth as low as low gets. Someone who is struggling with life, with lostness, with sorrow. So, for instance, let I me mean just look at a couple of examples here in the psalm. You'll read, like, verse 28. My soul melts away with sorrow. This is the person who's going off about the delights and the joys of God's word. He's saying, my soul melts away with sorrow. In verse 61, the cords of the wicked ensnare me. Verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies. Verse 19, I am a sojourner on the earth. I don't have a place to go, in other words. I am cut off. I'm alone. I'm like an alien in a planet. Trouble and anguish have found me out. Verse 143. And then finally, the, the last verse of Psalm 119, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. This is, this is not necessarily a pleasant framed picture, is it? This is, this is not a, a selfie that's trying to get the best angles. <laughs> I don't do selfies, but if I did, I can understand why you want to get the best angle. This is not a good angle. You're getting some really ugly shots of this person's face and features and of their situation behind them. They're under the gun. They truly are. It's, it's in so many lines of the psalm throughout the 176 verses that you hear the, the tunes of lament under the pressures and the weight of sin and fallenness in this world. That's, that's where this, this man's harp is tuned to an, a minor key in one sense. That he's writing of devotion and love to God's word while under the gun. And he's convinced of this in verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Oh, yes, this is my comfort, he says, in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The psalmist's delight is not merely found during good times, but in the bad, when things are not going well. His delight in God's word, his trust in the testedness of scripture is found when things are going dismally as well. And within our experience, it can be tempting to lay aside God's word when troubles come to roost. I think afflictions have a way of pressing down on our faith. They have a way of confusing and confounding and throwing up a fog when it comes to our faith and what is true and what we should really hold on to for for life and for comfort. Afflictions have a way of pressing down. And are we willing to? to hold on to God's promises even when it seems that they are miles and millennia away from being fulfilled. That's the question that haunts every Christian. Including those in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. It was said of them that they were willing to embrace God's promises from afar, knowing that they would not find their fulfillment in their very lifetime. They were willing to endure such things as being sawn in two for the purpose of God's word. They trusted God's word to the point of their death and not receiving what was promised because they believed the greater promise was in the life to come. To be found in the new Jerusalem, whose architect and builder is God. They were willing to endure such hardship as that, Hebrews 11. And that is certainly what we're looking at as well in our life and circumstance. Are you willing... To stand with the word of God. To cling to its truthfulness, its testedness. Even if you know in your heart of hearts, it's not going to be fulfilled in your life. You're not going to see all your problems lifted. All your pains anesthetized. Is that your faith? Are you willing to stand? even if they're miles and millennia away from fulfillment. And the logic of unbelief, when the fog of affliction comes in, there is a logic that unbelief loves to employ, that the devil knows exactly what to say. Certainly the words, has God said is a part of his lines, part of his lyrics, of his song, his dark song. And when he starts singing, when he starts, like the siren sings, when he sings during our afflictions the trials as they're pressing down, the logic of our unbelief can sound something like this. We'll start with week number one. Affliction hits. It hits hard. I am suffering. This is what we're saying under week one. I am suffering and I need God's help. I will go to the Bible. It's a good start. We're feeling the pain, the suffering of affliction. I'm running to God's truth because I know I need help. God's Word. Good start. Okay, week one. A couple weeks go by. Week three, okay? I am still suffering terribly. And God's Word, the Bible, hasn't done anything yet. But I know it's good for me. I know it's good. And I keep going back. I keep knocking. keep reading. Verse by verse. I keep scraping, looking for help. But I don't feel it yet, but I'm, I'm still going. So that's week three. And then many, many more weeks roll by. Maybe it's week seven, Okay? And you're saying something like, I'm still suffering terribly. The Bible just isn't helping at all. It's just not doing it. I don't feel hope. I don't see it. I'm not getting it. And then by week 20, months later, we say something like, I've moved on entirely because God's word did not do anything. It failed to help. I'm done. I gave it zero stars on the five-star review chart. I gave it miserable reviews. It didn't stand up to the test. And that's precisely, I think, some of the logic of unbelief when we're walking through afflictions and trials is to give up on God's word. So the striking part of Psalm 119 is that when afflictions come and along with them, the weakness of doubt and unbelief, the psalmist ramps up. He doesn't shrink down. When afflictions press down, he ramps up in his praise of God. He ramps up in his cries for help. He ramps up in his calls for trust in God's word. In fact, to the point of rebuking his own soul. And whatever's hitting him, he, he's, whatever's pressing down, he, he says, like in verses 25 and 28, he says, my soul clings to the dust. I mean, that's as low as you go. And, but his response is this, give me life according to your word. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. So prayer is a necessary part of our fight to delight in God's word. We all need to call upon the Lord in times of distress. It's a fight of faith. To trust God's word. It's a fight of faith. But let me tell you, and you know this, Christian heart, you know this, it's a good fight. Isn't it? Isn't it a good fight? Isn't it good to fight the fight of faith? Because the only alternative, and we know this, the only alternative is to lay God's word aside. Cast it off. It's not working. It's not numbing me. It's not helping me. It's not making me feel better. This really hurts. It's not working. So the only other option to trust and fighting in faith is to lay it aside and move on. And we don't want that. We do not want that, for that opens us up to so much garbage. That opens us up to so much grief. And that kind of garbage and grief does not go away easily. We need the grace of God to cut through the clamor. So we need to cling to God's word, even if it seems like it's not working. It's a fight of faith. So we need to move on to our final point this morning. God's words must be tried. In other words, you gotta put it to work, right? It's not a a painting on the wall of gentle Jesus leading the flock. No, these, the word of God is meant to be tried. It has treads. It calls you to travel. You've got to go with it. Walk. Walk it out, right? James is famous in his, in his uh, text in, in the book of James about being doers of the word, not merely hearers. For those who hear but do not do, they're like a man who looks in a mirror and turns away and forgets what he looks like. What a fool, right? And that's precisely what Psalm 119 is going to drive at. You'll notice that as much as this this psalmist is exclaiming his praise and gushing over the joy of the Bible, the treasure of the Bible, the, the testedness of the Bible, that it's trustworthy, he's also crawling out and valuing his response to it. So often he is saying things, Lord, help me to obey. Help me to walk this out. Help me to do this. Time and again, if you read through Psalm 119, which I would challenge you to do this week, read through it and and take note, how often is he asking God for help to walk it out? It's constant. So he's valuing not only God's word, but he's valuing holiness in real time. He's valuing the following, the obedience to God's word, as much as he's valuing God's word itself. And Jesus taught this. Jesus taught this. He said this in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And all of us go, oh, yes, Lord, give us rest. Give us rest. And then he fills out what rest looks like. Right? He says it. He says, take my yoke upon you. <laughs> Lord, if I thought you told us you're going to give us rest. Where's the pillow? You know, where, where's, the, where's the cot, Lord? Where's the uh, sort of mattress? I thought that was what you said. But he didn't say that. He said, take my yoke upon you. You're an ox. Get to work. (laughs) That's that's the common parlance. You're, you're You're being put to work by the Savior. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. And you will find rest for your soul. That's the key. That's the key. As we take on the yoke of Jesus Christ and follow our master, obeying his word, treasuring the obedience unto holiness, as we do that, we will find rest for our souls. It's gonna take everything out of us, but it's gonna put so much into us. It's glorious. That's the yoke of Jesus Christ right there. For my yoke is easy, my burden And Psalm 119 says so many very similar things, And, and here in verses 33 to 35, where the psalmist exclaims this, Teach me, O Lord, teach me the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. He gets it, doesn't he? You can see he gets what it means to love and delight in obedience. He gets what Jesus meant by take my yoke upon you. He gets it because he delights in it. It's not a burdensome enslaving thing. No, it is a thing that sets us free. This burden, this yoke, it's light. It's easy. It's beautiful to obey the scriptures. It's beautiful. So, we're entering the joy of our Master while on earth as we obey His Word. Holiness, hear me, holiness is not a drag. Holiness is not a burden. It is not a threat to our joy. It is not legalistic. It is not burdensome for the ones who have tasted and have seen the salvation of Jesus Christ. For those who have known the mercies of God, they are so compelled and desire to honor their Lord and their Savior by obeying Him, by taking His Word, by believing His Word, and by living it out. That is our call, brothers and sisters. You have been saved by the blood of Jesus, and now by the Spirit, you are being empowered, you are being called to go forward. Walk, step, obey, love. But there is no such thing as love without obedience in the kingdom of God. There is no such thing as love without obedience in the kingdom of God. To love is to obey. To obey is the love, Jesus tells us. So may we truly love with a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith. May we walk forward by the grace of God and obey, and obey. Put his words to the test. It is by the Spirit. Now, there is a warning to be considered in verse 176. The psalmist ends the entire psalm by saying this, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. I think for each of us, if we are as our flesh is, we will be tempted to lay aside God's word, to put aside obedience in favor of other things that seem to work better. Things that seem to bring us greater comfort or joy in this life. But if we allow that to occur, if we leave God's revealed will in Scripture alone, if we ignore it or leave it untried, it will mean for all kinds of grief for the soul. There will be no peace for the person who willfully and ignorantly lays aside the Bible and what the Bible teaches and commands of us. There will be no peace. There will be no rest for your soul, Jesus will make it clear to you. There will be no rest unless my yoke is upon you. There will be no peace for the man or the woman or the teen who puts aside God's word. Peace will fly away from you like a nervous bird. If you think peace and joy are found apart from the yoke around your neck, you're wrong. Holiness is joy. Obedience is life. And that's what Psalm 119 connects for us so wonderfully. Such devotion to holiness and obedience. Oh, may God help us. What are the things that we're turning a blind eye to? What are the activities, the patterns, what are the ways in which you are believing the lie that God either doesn't see or cannot see that you're doing? Where are you turning a blind eye and believing somehow that God is too? May the Lord call you to repent to pick up his word and to walk, to change, to grow. So God help us. Can I have John and the worship team return as I close here? Let's consider carefully the outcome of our past. You think here, verses 59 and 60. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. Think, where where do you stand this morning? Where are your feet planted this morning? What direction are you facing? Are you walking in the ways of Scripture? Are you delighting in? Are you trusting in the tested words of Scripture? For some here, you're not in the faith. You do not stand in the grace of God. And I would call you as well to repent. You're not a Christian. You need Christ. You need your heart to be cleaned and to be renewed so that you can walk in His ways. You need God. You need Christ. For, for many of us here, we are walking in the grace of God. We, we desire to grow and just be encouraged that God, by His grace and the power of His Word, His Word is the power of God unto salvation. And that includes your transformation in holiness. Do you realize that? This is not just sufficient to save you, make you wise unto salvation, so that you know the truth about Jesus Christ, your sin, but this is also the power of God to change you inside out, upside down, here in the Bible. God's word. So may the Lord in the year ahead, let us be convinced that God's word is the greatest treasure and let us relish in it. Let us be convinced that God's word is tested, that it can be trusted. And let us fight the good fight of faith. And finally, let us be convinced that God's word is meant to be tried, that our greatest joy is found in obedience to our Savior. Amen. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.